I'm Dr. Michelle Plaster, and you're listening to Between Two White Coats, a podcast where we dig into key issues surrounding health and wellness. I'm a family medicine doctor, and my co-host, Amber Foster, is a family medicine nurse practitioner. In our combined 30 years in medicine, we've seen a lot. We're discussing some of our biggest questions, obstacles, and patient-centered advice in hopes of educating you and keeping you informed. Make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you have found this podcast helpful, give us a five-star rating and review. This helps other people find our podcast. And make sure you share it with your friends. Thank you for your time. We look forward to serving you. This season, we're going to be tackling preventative health. Uh, We're going to break it up into gender-specific female and male, um, and just some things that you need to do and make sure you're following up with your doctors with to help prevent any chronic diseases. So uh, first off, regardless of age or gender, the top things, which we've said it over and over and over and over again, is making healthy food choices, getting enough exercise, rest and hydration. And we also, I didn't put this one on here, but gratitude, I think that really matters mindset. I think so too. And you know, we keep coming back to stress management and whatever, there's always phrases, whatever that actually means. But I think mindset is huge and, you know, taking care of your body with eating and hydrating and resting, taking care of your mind with all those things and managing your stress well. Yeah. Super important. And it doesn't matter at, you know, your stress looks different when you're 20 than when you're 80, but we all have it. So managing it matters. All right. So we're going to start out with females. So this is what to do in your 20s or 30s. So when you have someone come in that's a female patient between those ages, what are the things that we're looking for? So, you know, in your 20s and 30s, uh, we're doing the, the, there's not as many preventive things, but we're doing the things that we do for everyone. So I tend to, in my preventive visits, and I always teach my med students who are training with me, um, what are all the labs that we need to do? What are all the immunizations that we need to do? And then any other special testing. And so um, labs in our 20s and 30s, we want to look at um, cholesterol and sugar. And I don't think there's a lot of real clear recommendations um, for other lab work outside of checking a cholesterol or a sugar. Certainly if someone is overweight, we're going to check that more often. Uh, I like to do it at least annually if there are other family history or people have heart disease or they're overweight. Um, but I think the recommendations fall at every two to three years for normal weight, healthy people to make sure they get their cholesterol and sugar checked. Um, so that kind of in, you know, your twenties and thirties, that's all we're super focused on for your labs, for your immunizations. Everybody needs a flu shot from six months till, you know, forever till death, um, once a year. And those flu shots uh, become available in August to September, and they last through about uh, April to May. And so if you got your flu shot in February, that means come next August, you're due for the next one, even though it may be the same calendar year. Yes. So every fall, we need a flu shot. Um, and uh, other immunizations for this younger age group um I am going to have you speak on HPV vaccination and we'll we'll spend a little extra time on that because I think this is a vaccine that really got a bad rap right off the bat. 
Um, and a lot of people aren't HPV vaccinated. Well, and it's an optional vaccine for children like going to school. Um, and so it's one that parents can opt out of because of the nature of it, with it being the human papillomavirus. Um, I think because it's like sexually transmitted type disease um, that parents are a little apprehensive at 11 to go ahead and have that conversation with their child. Um, between 11 and 16, if you get it at that age, you only have to get two. If you get it after age 16, then you do have to get as a series of three vaccines. Um, but HPV is when we do pap smears on females, which we start at the age of 21. So this is this age group um, where they're getting their um, first pap smears is that's what we're looking. That's one of the things that we look for when we're doing pap smears. And so HPV, um, a lot of times in your twenties and thirties, your body will clear it, but it's when you're a little bit older, it, you know, it doesn't seem to do that as well. And so it's just a preventative, um, immunization, I knock on something and all my years I have, you know, sit and watch the patients. I've never had anyone have a reaction to it. Um, but it is definitely something that you would want to consider getting. And a lot of times um, it's an immunization that I do talk to about patients because maybe their parents didn't get it at, you know, between 11 and 18 or whatever. And so it's something they can make their decision on their own um, yeah. if they get older. And the recommendation now has been extended up until the people's 40s. So it has and, a safety profile for that. And this is, you know, HPV and cervical cancer is one of these things that we've learned a lot about in the last 10 to 20 years. Yeah. And so uh, when when I was growing up, we knew we were getting pap smears to screen for uh, cancer, cervical cancer. There was no HPV vaccine at that time. Um, and we actually, I don't think, had a very good scientific understanding of what caused cervical cancer. Over time, we have learned that the human papillomavirus, which there are over 200 different types of this virus, and a handful of them cause cervical cancer. Um, as Amber said, this is acquired sexually, and so people who are sexually active can acquire HPV. A lot of people will clear this virus. Of the 200 different types, many can cause genital warts or other things that don't don't become cancer, and then some of the high-risk ones will become, can cause cervical cancer. Just because you have HPV does not mean you will absolutely get cervical cancer. Sometimes our immune systems, this is a virus, our immune system can clear it and everything can be okay, but the people who don't clear HPV over the course of years, that HPV gets in the cells and it starts to change the cervical cells. In women, it certainly can be cervical or vaginal. Um, in anyone, it could be anal, it could be oral, throat cancers. Um, but again, this is this is a sexually transmitted infection. Um, because of that, a lot of people say, "How dare you bring this up about my 11-year-old?" Yeah, you know, this is we're, you're trying to give a vaccine for something that's sexually transmitted. Why in the world would we do that to an 11-year-old? Well, I'm hoping that the 11-year-old is not sexually active. Absolutely. So the goal is... And, and that's not always a guarantee, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. We don't want to make assumptions. But the yeah. goal is... Prior to sexual activity. Absolutely. You know, we don't think you're going to acquire polio at age five. We want to give you the polio vaccine before you could ever become in contact with it. We want to give you measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine before you can ever. So, you know, the science says what's the earliest age that you can give something that they will continue to hold protection mount a good immune response. And in, you know, it's interesting if you look age 11 through 15, 
You just need two shots. Your body is young. It mounts a great immune response and you only need two shots and you get that adequate immune response. 16 and over, you need three shots because you don't mount as good of immune response. So the science isn't accusing anyone of indiscretions. The science is saying at this age, you haven't been exposed. That's when we want to give you protection. This does not prevent cancers after people have HPV. This prevents cancers before people have HPV. So we want to do it before you're exposed to the virus. And we want to do it at the time when your body is likely to receive the vaccine and mount a long-term protection. When I was in graduate school, we had to do a community project and I did it, actually did it was when the HPV vaccine first came out. That's been, I think it was in 2006 or seven. And um, we, my partners and I in our group did, um, we gave out lifesavers and we were like, save a cervix. And that was our little tagline (laughs) was save a cervix. And so that's, I did a lot of research on it when it very first came out because uh, it was new and it was something that we could do. So we went to a local community college in Jacksonville and handed out um, the save a cervix things and about the HPV encouraging and educating yeah. and, and I love that you know as cervical cancer is the fourth leading cancer worldwide for women um, and it is absolutely preventable yeah. we have a vaccine to prevent a cancer and yet it's still the fourth leading cancer you and I still have patients on a, a two regular that have cervical cancer um, and so truly if you were not vaccinated for HPV um, and you are, you know, below 45 years old, um, consider and look into it and discuss with your healthcare provider. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the kind of, so who in the, who we really want to get vaccinated for this are really all of the 11 through 26 year olds. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who are 26 to 45, that becomes like, what do you mean? Why, it's an optional, who should opt in, who should opt out? And, you know, this is a sexually acquired, and if you've had normal pap smears and you're 35 years old and you've had the same sex partner um, for a long time and and haven't acquired HPV and you're in a monogamous relationship, this is not something that likely you need. But if you um, are divorced and you are having new sex partners, um, if you have had issues uh, of abnormal pap smears and other things, then it would be something that you may want to consider even in that 26 to 45 years, which is a newer recommendation. You know, we used in the to last couple of years. Yeah, we used to think you could only give it up until their 20s. Um, but now it does extend and there are people who may really benefit from looking at that. Um, and then while we're on sexually transmitted diseases, that's also this age group that we want to also target to make sure that we're doing our screenings for chlamydia and gonorrhea and HIV and hepatitis and syphilis and the list goes on and on. Absolutely. But like that needs to be something that you talk openly with your healthcare provider on because we do have positive tests still. And so, I mean, we all know how sexually transmitted diseases are acquired, yet we still are getting them. So, yes. um, you know, just making sure that those screenings are being done as well in that age group. Absolutely. And, and really any, any age group, and we'll move on to the others. Um, If there are new sex partners or potential uh, for acquiring infection, then getting screened for these things, there is no harm in doing a quick and easy test to just make sure Sure. that everything is okay. There is harm in having infections that don't get treated. And, And a number of these things are treatable if we catch them. Um, So we've talked about immunizations for this 20 to 30 year old, which is going to be your flu shot, your tetanus booster uh, once every 10 years. And that's all through life. You get a tetanus booster. Um, 
your tetanus booster, uh, Amber does more pediatrics than me, so I'm going to make sure I don't get this one wrong. <laughs> your tetanus shot is at age 11, correct? correct. And, and your, your peds shots. And so that makes you 21 when you're going to need your first booster. Mm-hmm. So if you are in college and you're, you know, oh, I'm done with all my shots, I've done my HPV shots, um, at 21, you may want to get a Tdap, which not only boosts you from uh, tetanus, but also helps protect from whooping cough. Which, and that's, I think, one thing that... Um, especially women in uh, reproductive years is uh, the Tdap for pregnancy because of the pertussis in it. And so a lot of times patients will come to me because their GYN wants their OBGYN wants them to get their Tdap. Yeah. And, and, uh, and just as Amber said, you know, babies can't be vaccinated for these things as newborns. And so it's up to all of us adults who surround those babies to protect ourselves so that we don't bring it to the baby. And whooping cough is a a really serious thing to make sure if you're going to be around a baby or, and you haven't had the shot in the last 10 years, you know, I I made everyone in my family, grandparents, (laughs) aunts and uncles all go get Get their Tdap so that they were protected from whooping cough so they couldn't give it to my baby. That's right. Um, so we've talked about immunizations. Is there any other immunizations in this 20 to uh, 30-year-old group? Except for the new COVID. And, of course, the COVID vaccine. Yeah, yeah that one's new. Um, and a couple of other things is uh, one is to check at preventative visits, like our annual visits. Like, are you smoking? Like, if you are, we need to you need to be quitting. I put that on my board. Like, do you smoke? Great. Awesome. Let's quit, and I'll help you. Um, having those conversations, like how much are you drinking? You know, are you binging on the weekends? Are you drinking every day? Um, you know, I think sometimes people just think that that's normal because that's their normal. Um, and then to realize they have, you know, abnormal liver enzymes and we're trying to figure out why. And then, oh, well, you binge on, drink on the weekends kind of thing. And you're, you know, you came in for your labs on Monday. <laughs> you know, yeah. so those types of things, that's uh, lifestyle habits we need to be addressing during it's preventative visits. It's a huge, uh, wonderful point in our pediatric adolescent up through our 20 to 30-year-olds. Um, this is where habits really get rooted. Mm-hmm. And um, how many people do we sit with who are in their 60s or 70s who have tried to quit smoking so many times? And let me be the bearer of bad news. Vaping is not the safer alternative. Amen. It is also horrible and you need to not be doing it. Um, but if we can have these really honest conversations when you're in your twenties and you can put it away, then, then you don't have 40 years of a habit to try to overcome, which becomes really, really hard. And so many of our patients will say, I wish I would have just known in my twenties, the harm this was going to do me. And I would have put it down then. Um, so having those conversations young, I think before things are deeply rooted is, um, life altering. Yes. So uh, in our labs, we've, in, in review of that, you want a diabetes screen, you want a cholesterol screen, blood and, pressure, and that's STD done screens where appropriate. And then we're going to check your blood pressure when, when you come in for those wellness visits or any of these kind of screening visits mm-hmm. and make sure that, you you know, blood pressure is a silent killer. And you may feel fine. You may not have symptoms. But when your heart has to work against a high pressure, you're going to push yourself into heart failure uh, in your years down the road. And so catching that early is huge. Um, uh, also then as far as, uh, other, you know, extra tests that we sometimes like to do, um, in the 20 to 30 year olds, there's not a lot of extra stuff. Unless that there's family history. Like that's a big deal. I don't think people realize like, and some people don't know their family history. And so it would be a good time to say, Hey, mom, dad, what are the things that run in our family? Cause there are some genetic tests we can do, yes. you know, for t- certain types of cancers. And so learning about your family history, um, at this age, you know, matter well at any age matters, but, um, you know, hopefully in your twenties and thirties, most people still have their parents living. 
you know, yeah. it would be, you know, it's not, not every person. Like I know that's not, a, that's definitely an assumption, but even some grandparents, like I still have my grandparents and my parents are both, right. still, you know, so. And, and no to family history. have these fun holiday conversations know, with right? your family, <laughs> what runs in our family? family. Yeah. Just so but you have an idea. Of just what as you said, for. that genetic uh, is there's so much genomic medicine now yeah. where we can do tests and find, do you, are you at higher risk of these things? And people will say, I don't really want to know if I'm at higher risk of that. Yeah. Um, but it changes how, what age we decide to start your mammograms, what yeah. age you start your colonoscopies or other yeah. screenings. And that way we can catch the preventable stuff early and keep you from ever getting sick. Yeah. So on to the next stage is 40s and 50s. So it's all of that, what we just said. <laughs> yep. And then at age 50, the new immunization is Shingrix, which is the um, shingles vaccine. So that's a series of one and then you repeat it in six months. Yep. So two to six months later, you can take the second. And then after those two shots, you are done with your shingles vaccine. Um, some confusion that sits around the shingles vaccine is there was a Zostavax that was the shingles vaccine up until about three or four years ago. And the Zostavax protected people from shingles uh, at about 60%. And then uh, other manufacturers came up with a better shingles vaccine, which is the Shingrex. And the Shingrex, it presents, it protects you at over 90%. And so if you had a Zostavax, the recommendation is that you would get the Shingrex for better protection. It's not something you have to do, but if you really want to avoid shingles, it would give you better protection. And any too. of my patients who have had shingles are like, oh my goodness, give me the shot. Avoid like it at all costs. Yes, it's so you painful. You know, if everything had the ugly rash that shingles has, yes. vaccines would, would be more popular. <laughs> yes. Like if everything looked like shingles. they'd Or felt like it. We'd yeah. all sign up for it. Yes, <laughs> yes, or hurt like shingles. And just for clarification, if people are listening and they're like, what is shingles? Um, when you have chickenpox as a child, even if you have a very mild case, you harbor that virus inside of you for the remainder of your life. If you are immunocompromised, if you are run down, sick with the flu, you know, uh, and as we get older, our immune systems are not as strong. So that's where shingles comes out more in older age. But that chickenpox virus lives in these nerves and then comes back out in a nerve distribution. And you get this sort of patchy rash that normally is just on one side of the body. And because it lives in the nerve, it creates horrible nerve pain. And so with that, being able to prevent this is huge. And so the Shingrex, we highly recommend. Um, and, you know, over age 50 uh, you likely qualify for a Shingrex, and that's something to talk to your provider about. Um, other screenings that we do, um, mammograms start at age 40. So in this age group, unless there's been a family history and you need something, um, you know, significantly earlier. Um, I but, feel like the recommendations on the age for mammogram is a constant change. Yeah. And um, and at 1.35 was where we were looking, and then some at, at some conversations were saying maybe 50 but the recommendations across and, and, you know, if you, if you uh, fact check us on these things, you may find that what we're saying doesn't agree with your Google search because the American um, College of Obstetrics and Gynecology versus the Societies of Cancer and Oncology versus Radiology, they don't all agree. Yeah. Um, but 40 is really the general basis. Yeah. And if you are at higher risk, 
um, due to family history or other things, then we would recommend that you start sooner. Um, And that would be a conversation. What that age is really depends on the age of which your family members are diagnosed and the types of cancers and whether you've done genetic screens and those kind of things. But yeah, you want to start your mammograms and the mammograms start at age 40. And I try to convince my patients to get it every year, especially to start. But there are different recommendations for either annually or every one to two years. And so whatever you're comfortable with in there is really your own decision. Um, But breast cancer is early detection as a cure. And we have countless patients who are alive today because breast cancer was caught early in a mammogram. Yeah. Um, Beyond that, we've talked about the STD screen. So again, annually, um, if you've had new or multiple sex partners, um, blood pressure, cholesterol, um, blood sugar checks, like those are routine labs that we are doing. And then the colonoscopy, which everyone, I'm like on my board in my room, it says, you're welcome. Like I've already ordered this. Like we're, this yes. is the conversation. You need to have a colonoscopy. So Amber has this wonderful for any of her patients who are very familiar with this. But she has this wonderful board in her rooms that she has written on, which is all her messaging to you that you might not want to hear, but she's going to make you see it every yeah. time. And it says, if you have not had a colonoscopy, you're over age 50, you need one. Yeah. So colonoscopy start at age 50, unless you have a family history of colon cancer. And if you have a family history, then we want to start five years prior to the age of your family member who had it. So if you have a dad who had colon cancer at age 50, then you would want to start at 45 on your colonoscopies. Um, so let's talk about this new thing, the ColoGuard. It is okay. the kinder, gentler yeah. colon <laughs> cancer uh, screen. Yeah. So, um, And everyone's seen the commercial for yes. that cute yes. little ColoGuard box. Um, so ColoGuard is an alternative for colon cancer screening. Um, the ColoGuard is a good test. Uh, you know, the best test is the test that someone will do. Mm-hmm. Um, ColoGuard is about, uh, about 90% as sensitive as a colonoscopy. Uh, it is a stool test. So uh, sent to your house is the ColoGuard box and you um, do a stool collection and you send it back. It tests for two DNA markers that are um, indicative of colon cancer um, or blood in your stool, which can happen for hemorrhoids or other reasons, but can also happen with colon cancer. Um, It seems like if you can do all this, it's 90% as good. Why wouldn't everyone just be doing this? But there are some very clear indications for people who need to be doing colonoscopies. If you are high risk, you have a family history, you have polyps in the past or have had an abnormal colonoscopy, the ColoGuard is not the best test for you. You need to get the colonoscopy. Um, Also, I just want to make everyone aware Um, Due to the Affordable Care Act, all of these screening tests are considered free tests if you have insurance. Insurance is mandated to pay 100% of the screening preventive test. The ColoGuard is a screening preventive test, and so insurance will pay 100% of it. But let's say you have a history of hemorrhoids, um, and so there's a chance you could have some bleeding. You're going to get an abnormal ColoGuard maybe because of your hemorrhoids. Well, we have to go on and do the colonoscopy because who knows if it's your hemorrhoids or if it's colon cancer. Well, now you've had an abnormal ColoGuard, so your colonoscopy is no longer a screening test. It is now a diagnostic test. If you have a high deductible or you have other um, insurance that is going to be a lot out of your pocket, you may have to pay for your colonoscopy now, which can be expensive. And so if that is a concern or if you have a high deductible plan, you may want to consider just going for the gold standard best test, which is the colonoscopy. 
Um, I will get the blessing of colonoscopies yes. here very soon because I turn 50 Yay. in the coming days. And so with that, uh, I am actually going to do my colonoscopy. I'm not going to do a cologuard, although it is easier and I don't really look forward to the colonoscopy. Um, the worst part of it is really the, the prep. prep. That's you know? what everyone says. Like you you're sleep through the rest of it. So. it, it we're going to give you something to induce diarrhea. Yeah. And you're going to clean out your colon. And then the next day, we're going to pitch into this really great twilight <laughs> sleep. Nice sleep. And then you're going to wake <laughs> up and look at the doctor and be like, why haven't you done my colonoscopy? And he or she's going to say, I'm done. Yeah. Um. So, you know, the procedure itself's not bad. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and do it because it's the 100%. Yeah. And I think at least to start. Now, if I had two normal colonoscopies and everything was what I consider a colocard, I might. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to know. But... Um, I, I, when it comes to cancer, I want the best test. Mm-hmm. I just rather err on the side of the most caution. So it is entirely patient specific as to what you want to do, but that's the difference between, um, colon, colon cancer yeah. screening options. I had a patient, this is so random, but I had a patient and every time I think about col- um, the Cologuard, it makes me think of this. I had a patient who had, she said she was willing to do the Cologuard. So when she came back to see me and I didn't have results, I'm like, you told me you would do this. Like, why, where is the test? She's like, Amber, I, I didn't get it. And I'm like, seriously? She's like, yeah. So we're like looking. It was sent. Her, She ended up finding her dog had eaten the box. And I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I was like, that's hilarious. I bet they've never had an animal eat right. the Cologuard test. So we sent another one, and she did do it. But she was like, Amber, I promise. I promise I would have done it. I didn't get it. And like I was like. the dog ate my homework. Yes. It was, real. it was hilarious. Every time I hear Cologuard, like, I literally think of that. It makes me laugh. That is funny. Um, and, and colonoscopies are, you know, we're talking about whether things are gender specific. But everything we've been really talking about with the immunizations, flu shots, you know, from six months up and COVID shots and um, all of this is for both males and females. females. Even the HPV vaccine. Um, Even the HPV vaccine. Uh, Initially, we thought HPV more for girls uh, to prevent cervical cancers, but because of anal, throat, um, oral cancers... Uh, we have found that there is a huge benefit and our ear, nose and throat colleagues are very much advocates of the HPV for, for both uh, males and females. All right. So moving on into our sixties, um, vaccines, we pretty much have covered those. The new vaccines in the sixty in your sixties start um, at age sixty five. So the you pneumonia. still have all those old vaccines. Yeah, all the ones we talked about. As you age, we just keep tacking stuff on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you got your annual flu shots and your every ten year T daps for your whooping cough and tetanus, and you did your one time shingles, shingrex that you know one shot, another one two to six months, and then you done with that. And then into the sixties, now we want to protect you from pneumonia. Um, the, uh, the gold standard protection from pneumonia is a pneumococcal, uh, the pneumococcal 23 protects against, uh, 23 different potential causes of pneumonia, um, and mostly bacterial pneumonias. Um, that is, if you are not a high risk person, then that is at age 65 and that's the only pneumococcal shot that you need. Um, prior to age 65, if you're diabetic, if you don't have a spleen, which helps, you know, fight infections. Um, if you, what are others, um, if you have respiratory illness, yes. COPD, asthma, other, any other cystic fibrosis, if you're immunocompromised, if you're on meds that make you immunocompromised, like maybe you're on some Plaquenil or Humira for your autoimmune diseases, um, then we give you a pneumococcal shot every five years. 
Um, but if you don't have those things, then at age 65, you get Sorry. your pneumococcal 23, and that's a one and done if you don't have the other issues. Um, and then there is a recommendation that they've gone back and forth on in the last couple of years for the Prevnar. Mm-hmm. Um, they were recommending to do the Prevnar at 65 and then to follow with a pneumococcal at 66. And so it was sort of like a pneumonia shot and then a pneumonia booster a year later, and then you were done um, with pneumonia vaccines. Um, but now they've switched it back to the pneumococcal at age 65 and then a Prevnar in a year, but the Prevnar in a year isn't optional. I think it offers you better protection and, you know, we want to protect you against pneumonia as you get older because fighting off pneumonia can be more difficult and cause problems. Um, so we certainly, I try to advocate for people to get the Prevnar at the one year after their pneumococcal, but that is one that is still the suggestions on that may change again. Um, we, you're still going to get your colonoscopies. The colonoscopies will continue once every 10 years from age 50 through age 75. Um, and that is if you didn't have any abnormalities, depending on if you had polyps or other things, then the frequency of those may go down to every three years or every five years. And your surgeon or gastroenterologist would let you know if that frequency needed to be different than every 10 years. Um, you're going to continue to do your mammograms for females and uh, your other screens that we've already talked about through your blood work and, and other things for your blood pressure, for um, diabetes, for cholesterol. Um, also then from age in your 60s, uh, like age 65 and up. Um, we're going to bring you in for a Medicare wellness visit. And this is one that Medicare has really defined. So if you get mad at us for asking you how your memory is, Medicare has made us do that. It yes. is not our fault, yeah. but it is not a bad idea. You know, as we age, um, these recommendations don't just get made up to annoy people. Um, it is because these are the things we miss and that we recognize if we could detect these things earlier or do something about them um, sooner that we could prevent a lot of issues. And so depression screening is something that we like to do for adolescents, but we also like to do for people that are 65 and over because a lot has changed as we age and there's a lot of stressors. And so we start asking questions to make sure we're not missing anything. Um, and, and those, we don't always have the opportunity to do those kind of screens or any of these screens well, even like in a, a normal fall visit. Screen. Like we do that during a medical wellness visit. Like what are your fall risks and like, what is your, um, you know, in your home or where you live? Like, what are the things, do you have rugs? Like, do you have yes. things that you can trip over? Um, because you know, chronic conditions, we have patients that are on like blood thinners. So like my worst case scenario in my head, you know, I can picture all of this happening as a patient falls, they're on blood thinners and they're bleeding out in their own little house by themselves. And I'm just like, Oh my yes. goodness, like, can we prevent these? You yes. know? So that's and one of the things that wellness visits allow us to do is it gives us a little bit more time to say, Hey, what's your environment look like? Are you falling? Have you fallen? You know, a lot of falls happen in the bathroom. Do you have access to a shower chair or to something that you can hold on to or the little grippy things. I don't even know what they're called, but yeah. you know what I'm talking about. You put them in the shower, those types of things. Um, and then the other thing that comes up in our sixties and over is a PSA for males. Yeah. Um, that is the prostate specific antigen. That is a blood test. I, and it helps screen for prostate cancer. Um, PSAs are, I, you cannot find uh, clear recommendations for or against PSAs. Um, when you look at different, you know, we lean on um, our uh, medical uh, um, 
referring agencies, government and otherwise, the World Health Organization, the United States Preventive Task Force that make these recommendations that we follow. And when you look that up on PSAs, it will say this should be a conversation with your doctor. So my conversation with males for this is typically, do you have a family history of prostate cancer? Are you concerned with prostate cancer? Um, the reason that PSAs don't have a clear recommendation is because sometimes when we start doing too much preventive stuff, it may lead to unnecessary tests or interventions that may cause more harm than good. And so um, if you get a PSA that's elevated, that does not always equal prostate cancer. Um, so in these scenarios, we would have a conversation and I will typically speak to my patients and say, is this a test that you would be interested in? And then if it is elevated, we can sit and talk and look at what the options are. That does not mean we have to jump to unnecessary interventions. I personally am a fan of doing PSAs. Um, my husband is African-American and I have started PSAs on him in his forties because African-American males will have prostate cancer at younger age. Um, his dad had prostate cancer, early detection and a cure and no issues. So we watch really closely. And I think seeing a bump in a PSA for him would be something we'd really want to know. Um, uh, in Caucasian males, the age it can easily be starting in the 60s. Um, but depending on your family history, your risk factors and your comfort with that, you know, different patients want tested for everything. Mm -hmm. um, other patients say, oh, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Leave me alone. And so this is really a conversation for whatever a patient is comfortable with. But uh, prostate cancer also early detection is a cure. It's a slow cancer that doesn't it's not real aggressive. And, and we can often if we find it, do something and and make sure it doesn't become a metastatic cancer. Yeah. For men also over the age of um, 65 is the triple A screening. So if you've been a smoker, um, to get that abdominal ultrasound to make sure that we don't have any. Yeah. So triple A stands for abdominal aortic aneurysm. This is when the aorta has kind of a stretched out weak area. And, uh, if you have been a smoker, you are male and you are over 65. Those are all risk factors that increase your risk of this. It is a one-time ultrasound, non-invasive, just the wand on the belly um, to make sure that the, ultra, that the um, aorta is okay. Um, and, and certainly this is something we would want to make sure that if you were a male over 65 history of smoking that you did, because otherwise, if you have a ruptured um, aortic aneurysm, it will be found on autopsy. Yeah. This is not something that people live through. It can be surgically repaired if we catch it. But if we don't catch it, then it tends to go to a very bad place. And so, yes, thank you for... Um, and then the uh, DEXA scans, the osteoporosis screenings for females. Um, well, it, you can start at age 62, but mostly over 65. Um, so those are the bone density scans. We would um, do that as a preventative as Correct. well. And this is one where they've really taken all the different actuarials, putting together numbers to say who gets a DEXA scan. Um, some of these recommendations, I, you know, want to act like I'm smarter than the millions of scientists who do this <laughs> stuff for a living. And, um, and it makes me a little frustrated that there are not recommendations for DEXA scans for men. How yeah. many men do we know that are in their geriatric years have a hip fracture? Um, but you have to look at multiple risk factors and there are some calculators that exist that you can go in and put in risk factors for osteoporosis. And it asks you, you know, your gender, your age, other risk factors. 
And if you score above a certain amount, then we would want to um, propose getting a bone density or a DEXA scan for you, whether you were male or female. But postmenopausal females who are over age 62 and insurance sometimes doesn't want to pay it until over age 65 should get a bone density scan once every five years for screening for osteoporosis. Yeah. Now, well, as I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say one of the things that I, I, I just was thinking about was um, when we're talking about preventative things like sleep, we tend to also do Epworths, which is a this a screening for sleep apnea. Uh, I do that on any, like lots of different ages of patients, not just specifically to older patients, but we do screen them at their medical wellness visits for that as well. Yes. Um, and catching sleep apnea and treating sleep apnea prevents a whole oh, yeah. lot of other mess, a lot of other mess. Now, a lot of these screening recommendations people age out of. Um, my, I remember my dad telling me how mad he was when uh, his doctor in Ohio told him, you'll never need another one of these. Um, and I was like, well, dad, you, you know, after age 75, you don't need any more colonoscopies. They, yeah. The recommendation is to not. The funny part was for him, he was like 60 and his doctor told him he'll never need another tetanus shot. Yeah. And I was like, oh, your doctor <laughs> doesn't think you're going to live longer than 70. <laughs> so yeah, that wasn't good news. Yeah, no. but, um, but mammograms, the recommendation stops. Um, at age 75. Colonoscopies, the recommendation stops at age 75. Um, and uh, bone densities, we want to keep doing those because the older you get, the more at risk and the worse yeah. outcome you'll have from a broken hip. So there is no aging out of getting um, that. Uh, we want to continue to keep you immunized as you age because it becomes even more important if your immune system isn't as strong. Um, the recommendations on stopping some of these things, uh, you know, I have a patient who was 90 and he was very insistent that he wanted his colonoscopy, but he was on one prescription. He was on better health than most of the 60 year olds that I was seeing. Yeah. And I said, Hey, if you want to do this, then we'll do it because the, the recommendations, remember these are population health recommendations. We're applying a rule to the entire population. So it's important that you sit with your doctor and see how that rule may need to be altered for you. You know, based on, like we've said, family histories or your other medical illnesses. Um, you know, I have patients who are extremely sick and we're really doing comfort measures and they're 60. Um, we don't need to keep doing mammograms. You know, they're, the odds of them getting breast cancer or dying from breast cancer when they're in end-stage COPD is not something we need to keep looking yeah. for. So these are the general guidelines, and it's up to really sitting with your trusted practitioner to decide if you may be an exception. If you're 90 and you're in great health, you might still want to be doing some of these things, even though they say age 75, you can stop. The other, you know, this is always good news to our patients. Um, I, I've said mammograms can stop at 75, colonoscopies can stop at 75, and pap smears can stop at 65. And when I tell my 65-year-olds that, they're like, oh, praise God, because yes. we didn't need to be doing any more of those. Um, so it really is an evaluation of um, risk factors to decide what health screenings you should continue to do. Um, are there any, you know, health screenings and wellness things that we've missed? We've missed. The biggest thing is like, well, not during a preventive visit, typically are we talking a lot about chronic diseases, but we are talking about health maintenance type things for chronic diseases like diet and exercise and stress management, like we kind of mentioned up at the beginning. Yeah. Um, lifestyle is always worth a conversation and our lifestyle can slip away and we sometimes need someone to remind us of these things. Yes. Yeah. Like I will always say to patients, um, you know, you've lost weight or you've gained weight. Let's talk about that. So, I mean, I know some people may be offended by that, but that is a vital sign. Like it's matter. It's 
matter of life or death in some cases. And, you know, there's a lot of research that says by nature of your doctor bringing something up with you, (laughs) it makes it real to you. You know, there's research that shows that if we discuss smoking with a smoker, um, instead of just skirting over it and assuming they're not going to quit, how much it brings to their attention and how much those people are more likely to quit. Yeah. Um, same with gaining weight. You know, we'd like to have that conversation with you every year when you've gained 10 or 15 pounds, as opposed to not seeing you for many years and you've gained 50 or 60 pounds. And now we're diagnosing you with things as well. Um, and so to be able to lovingly say, Hey, let's, what's happened here and let's get, get back. back yeah. Get back to where we need to be. You know, if you uh, did not, if you're new to our podcast and you did not listen to the uh, season that we talked with Amber's dad, I think everything we talk about today is really highlighted in in what happens uh, when you don't do any of these things Mm -hmm. and you haven't seen a doctor in 20 years because so many of the things that almost killed your dad uh, could have been prevented. And we talked about his diabetes, his sleep apnea, his prostate cancer, his heart attack, his high blood pressure, pressure. all things that would have been caught through routine screening Mm -hmm. and annual visits. So if all you do is see your doctor once a year and we can't get you to do much else but come in for your once a year annual wellness, know that some insurance companies will give you a break and sometimes give you a discount or points toward things or more in your health savings account by doing an annual wellness because they know that you're going to save them money in the long Mm -hmm. run by doing these visits so we can prevent illness. Um, And all of this that we've talked about is covered by insurance as preventive, which means it's 100% coverage. And we highly encourage that you would sit down with your medical provider once a year so that we can make sure we're not missing any of these yeah. things. And I think one of the, the reasons I put my all of my little lovely things I write on my board is because a lot of times in patients that are younger than 40, we only see them when they're sick. They come in because they have a problem. They're not doing preventative things. So that's why I put that there so that when, if they have to wait on me, well, you know, to be seen for their sick visit, they're like, oh, wait a minute, I do, I do need to do some of this. So just to kind of put it in front of them to say, you need an annual wellness. And so, you know, our older patients tend to be better about coming in because they have multiple conditions. And so then we're like, hey, you need to come to your annual and they'll do that. But some of the younger patient population, you know, once they kind of kids kind of get past the immunization stage or the college stage, like 18 and up, you know, yeah, we lose them. We lose them for a little bit um, until there's an issue. Yeah. So um, I think that's a, or a lot of women will start using their ob guns yeah. as their, um, as their uh, primary care, yeah. and which is not a problem. And the ob guns do an amazing job with this. But as my ob guns friend likes to say, she's the plumber, I'm the general contractor. Yeah. <laughs> and so she's like, if it's not plumbing, that's not my area of expertise. Yeah. If your cholesterol is high, I'm going to send you to someone else to do something yeah. about it. Um, so I, I really encourage everyone to get their annual wellness visit and to make sure that you are staying in touch with your physician and that we have this dedicated visit, um, on preventive health. We like to end on a positive note. Today's tell me something good is birthdays. I turned 40 this year and I told my husband, instead of having a birthday, I'm going to have a birthday celebration every month this year. So I know that might be a little overboard, but I'm celebrating big. So I encourage you to celebrate your birthday big this year. Until next time, take care of yourself.